0: So, welcome to Bold New Breed. Today I'm with Guillaume Alvarez, whom I've known for several years. I had the pleasure of meeting him at a Peter Drucker event in Munich a few years ago. Guillaume is the Senior Vice President of Steelcase, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. He has welcomed my practitioner thought community to the Steele Case Work-Life Center in Paris several times for our monthly sessions. Guillaume is also president at the European Executive Council, and he's a member of the board of the Peter Drucker Society Europe. And one more point that I think is interesting is he spends a lot of time with the EU Commission, has a lot of contacts and work there. So Guillaume's experience goes beyond his company affiliation. And he's in a position to give us some, I think, pretty unique viewpoints. Thank you, Guillaume, again for coming.
1: My pleasure, Ranjit.
0: So, I'd like to start, if you could tell me just a little bit about Steelcase in terms of where you people are at right now in this strange point in history.
1: We've been very busy, as you can imagine, you know, despite the fact that our is. About 110 years old in just a few weeks. Uh, there's never been a better moment to study work, uh, workers in the workplace. So we've actually conducted in the last year eight primary research around the world in about 10 countries. So the largest to the most influential economies. And we've actually talked and surveyed 32,000 people.
0: Wow. Um, that's uh, impressive. In, in,
1: We've analyzed more than 8,000 floor plans to actually look at what was going on and what could be changing.
0: Wow, that's really, really impressive. I knew you guys did research. I didn't realize you did it to that extent. Congratulations already on conducting all that.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jane.
0: So my next question probably is going to come from your observations during that research, and that is do you see a new work culture that's emerging? And if you do, how would you describe it?
1: That's that's the question, Jane, because I would say the first thing that has emerged from our research is that the point of views, the opinions that we gathered uh, evolved tremendously in the last 16 months. I would say, you know, past the first couple of weeks of shock and surprise and consideration in front of the situation you know that lasted just for a few weeks we've gone through a series of phases the first one probably was something like oh gosh working from home is possible and then it moved uh, quickly I would say sometime summer of last year into and it's not bad you know we don't (laughs) waste uh, time in commutes I can take care of the dog, I can, you know, do my doctor appointments, i more relaxed. And then from the employer standpoint, there was a moment of, well, maybe we can get rid of some of our real estate and improve our bottom line. So this is where we were last year. And then reality sort of settled in because people got tired of working alone from home. In many cases, in small, noisy apartments, that's mostly the case for the big European cities. Much worse in Asia and Pacific, as you can imagine, you know, very densely populated buildings, uh, families living together. And it was a bit less in the U.S. where, as you know, most uh, qualified people work in suburban areas. They have their own house. Their houses are generous. So we've seen that the world was sort of taking different paths around working from home is a curse or a blessing. And and we finally, I think, reached the stage where we are right now, which is probably not opposing working from home or working from the office. is the way forward and then trying to make sense of what is the proper balance versus what is a negotiated point of view. So let me explain that for just a brief second. It's very tempting to say. You know, if you were my employer, Jen, I would say, can I work from home a day or two a week? You know, and then we cut a deal and then that's it. It's very simple, very transparent. But what's becoming obvious is that it doesn't really work like that because the value of being in the office is to be with others. And it's really the serendipity of the relationships and the encounters that creates information gathering, idea generation, but also trust building. And therefore, you need to have some form of orchestration of what's happening, and it goes past the agreeing that on Monday or Wednesday or Friday you'll be home, because there may be Mondays where you need to be in the office and Fridays where everyone needs to be in the office. So that's kind of where we are right now. It's a realization that the office may be more important than ever, but that choices for employees are actually going to. Contribute positively into employee productivity and engagement by offering choices that are orchestrated.
0: You know, something that really impressed me and other members of my group when we visited your work-life center in Paris is the way, and I've just never forgotten this, the way you have a building with several stories and you have different work spaces that serve different purposes. And when you just now use the word orchestrate. It made me think of that because in a building design like that, people can go to the space that they need for the type of work that they're doing, whether it's an intimate conversation with one or two people or a larger meeting or private thinking time uh, or virtual communication with people around the world. You had spaces to accommodate all those different needs. Is that the way you see the future or the office today evolving?
1: Yeah, you describe it very well, Jane. It's the solution to, I think, the problem we have to solve. And if I may take us back just a little second, I would say, what is that problem? The problem is that words don't really work as well as in the past. Why? Because everything's been said. Uh, you know, I would encourage all your listeners to go to the website of any company, and I think you're going to find on any website. Our people are our most important assets. We protect the environment and we're a very innovative company. (laughs) I don't know anyone that doesn't say something like that. But then you do experience something really different when you visit this company. Sometimes better, sometimes exactly as described, and fortunately very often really not close to what is being declared. So the words don't work by themselves. They have to take shape in the mind of the employees through experiences that people leave. So if you want the people to have choice and control, if you want them to develop trust in each other, trust in leadership, space becomes one of the most effective tools at your disposal to create an experience that employees will leave every day. For example, leadership is easily accessible. Is that the case? Can you see that? Is there a door that you need to push? Do you need to ask permission to someone? Do you need a badge to actually exit their floor? So, you know, this is contradicting the words of leadership is is accessible. On the other hand, to use your example of our work lives, as you know, we've always put leadership in the middle of the action, usually close to the entrance, ideally in between the entrance and a good cup of coffee, because that's where everyone (laughs) is walking by, and uh, very far from creating disruptions and lack of concentration, it does create leadership being in the flow. So what I'm trying to illustrate with that example is there is a problem around beliefs and engagement in most organizations today. The space is a fantastic opportunity to create an experience that will shape the belief of the employees. Because they see that what is being said is actually translated into their everyday experience at work. Once these beliefs are taking shape, it's interesting how the behaviors do evolve. So if I use the same example, uh, Jane, at the beginning, you know, in every location where we've put management in the path between entrance and coffee, not many people dared to ask any question or make any comment or interrupt or offer you a cup of coffee. It does take some time. But once the beliefs are starting to take shape and the conviction is starting to form that indeed you can talk to management, indeed, you know, you can exchange a hello, a smile, then people start to behave like that. And they come see you with ideas, with problems, with suggestions, or simply with something interesting, you know, to say an anecdote, a story. So I think the bigger problem is, you know, can, can we today ignore the fact that culture is a competitive advantage? I think the answer is no. And then what tools do we have at our disposal? Processes, they're very important. Programs, they're also very important. Words, much less than before. And experience that you leave every day in the office, that's very impactful in our own experience.
0: We're talking now about the internal life of an organization. How do you see A company's responsibility to the community where they live or to the global community in the case of large organizations. What should corporations and organizations have in mind? What should they do? And does that impact in any way your area of specialty of design offices?
1: It does, Jane. And I think it starts with having a clear purpose. What's the purpose of your business? Is it clear? And are you really executing on the vision of that purpose? Employees demand that today, Uh, not just the young generation. Of course, the young generation has been raised, you know, with these issues in a more uh, prominent way than than perhaps people of our generations, Jen, you and I. But even for us, it's important to understand if what you do is useful. If you're actually solving a real problem. And so the answer for a company is creating workspaces where people want to be, where they feel more productive, and where they can actually believe through the experiences that they leave, that they're doing something useful for their employers, for their teammates, and also for the community. So I think a sense of purpose is absolutely the very first place to start. And then, of course, the responsibility is huge with the environments and with governance and also with social responsibility. So I think we are today in a place where companies that take it seriously are recognized for their actions versus the declarations. Um, we've worked very hard at stickies You've asked how important it is for us. Our company became carbon neutral last year, Jay. Mm-hmm. And our objective is to become carbon negative in 2030. Mm-hmm. So that means a lot of things. It's the way we engineer a product, the way we manufacture a product, the way we ship our products around the country, around the world, the way we manage our factories or energy usage. All of the manufacturing processes really from A to Z needs to be very well thought through to achieve an objective like that. And we have the same level of ambition on the social side through our foundation, but also through the level of engagements that we provide our opportunities with. We're convinced that well-being is critical to employee engagements. Mm. And there are really three types of well-being that are very important to successfully implement. The first one is the physical well-being. It's easy to understand. Good lighting, good air, good temperature, you know, good posture, etc. The second one, which I think is also relatively well understood, at least it's very well understood in our personal lives, is the emotional well-being. We like cozy living rooms and nice bedrooms and beautiful gardens, you know, so what's the version of that in the office? It's uh, it's greenery, it's warm materials, it's cozy spaces where you feel that uh, you can concentrate and you like being there. And the third well-being, I think that one is the challenge of the times, uh, Jane, is the cognitive well-being. Understanding what is going on around you. Are you in the flow? Are you in the know? Are you being recognized? Are you being acknowledged? Do you know what is going on around? You know, are you in the right project? How's the company doing? How's your project doing? So I think we used to think about all of that in the form of emails and the town walls or things like that. But but all of this has tremendously lost impact. The space can create a lot of positive cognitive well-being by being transparent, by showing information, by allowing people to see what is going on in the office. So your example of the five floors here, which are open right around a courtyard and, and lighting on the ceiling, is a very easy way for everyone to see what is going on. By the way, including the leaders, I love. I love being in a space, you know, Munich, London, Paris, where at 10 o'clock in the morning, I know what's going on. I don't need to ask. I can see if the teams are happy, if they're concerned, what's going on, what's the big deal, what everyone's getting excited or concerned about. It's sound, you sense it because there is this intentional design to provide solid cognitive well-being through, through the design of the space.
0: I like your talking about uh, well-being and the dimensions that you mentioned, the three ways and the three parts of it, I would say. And I just wanted to uh, mention that in my research about gig-mindsetters, I discovered that uh, people who were highly gig-mindsetted in the way they worked had a greater sense of well-being and work-life balance than people who were less gig it in the way that they work. And I'm not going to go into details about that, but the gist seemed to be that the people with a lower gig mindset said that gig mindsetters have more control. They feel better about what they're doing. And the gig mindsetters agreed. The data showed, and the verbatim showed that they felt, again, it's what you said earlier, they had a purpose in what they were doing and they had a certain degree of control over it. And there's That's, been a fascinating study by then in a university in North America. I don't remember which one. Over, I think they did a thing over seven years or longer. And they showed people who felt they had control over their work lived longer, literally lived, had longer lives than people who were in situations where they felt they had no control.
1: I, I can totally confirm that, Jane. About uh, five, six years ago, we did a global survey. Trying to understand the level of engagement or disengagement of workers in a very wide variety of countries in Western Europe, in North America, but also in Africa, in Latin America and in Asia. And uh, we found out a few things. First of all, there is a very large percentage that is disengaged and uh, a concerning percentage that is actively disengaged, which is, you know, an even more concerning situation. The second big learning is when you try to understand what is the source of it. A big part of it is the sense that they have no control over anything. Their workplace, their working hours, where they work, their level of privacy, you know, absolutely anything at all. That is a very frustrating impact on the way employees feel and the way they consider, the way they're valued by their employers. So I imagine that, you know, people with a gig mindset that are more intentional, more in control of what they do would get a much higher degree of satisfaction that people that tend to be more passive and whose needs are not proactively catered for. So I think it is the responsibility of employers to not just wait for things to be asked for, but to actually anticipate the fundamental needs of their employees, which are human needs. You know, I've talked about Mm. ergonomics, I've talked about, you know, being in a warm environment and what is going on. So, you know, these are great levers to increase engagement. And we know that when the engagement is higher, the productivity is also higher.
0: Guillaume, I've got a final question for you. In fact, it's one that I hadn't thought of asking you until a couple of days ago when I realized I needed to take advantage of talking with you today. I have been invited and I have accepted to give the graduation speech for an executive MBA program. And this is going to be online, obviously, to a, a large group of people who have just completed their executive MBA degrees. They're not young, but they're not old. It's sort of middle. If you had to give people in that context who are about to go back to their companies or often new companies, but sort of a new lease on their leadership, what, what would you say to them to inspire them?
1: I would quote Peter Drucker, <laughs> Shane, I would say, you know, culture is, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to change these words, right, to answer your question, but culture is, in a way, much more important than strategy. Mm-hmm. So pay attention to the people you're working with. Remember, they're human beings. They have very important needs that have to be met, and they have, for the most part, untapped potential. So I think successful mm-hmm. leaders are the ones that are able to unlock the potential that is hidden in people that sometimes would like to come out and would like to be expressed, but the weight of the traditional management style and office layouts and company protocols actually sometimes prevents that tremendous potential from coming out. So I would Mm. say, you know, great leaders uh, understand that culture is what matters the most and and work at unlocking the potential of the people they work with. And, uh, you know, with degrees of separation, not just their direct collaborators, but That people actually throughout the organization that depend on their leadership. So I wish that most MBAs would spend more time around psychology, sociology, ethnography. These are disciplines that are as important as finance and legal expertise and um, strategic mindsets and all of that. So they're not more important. They're equally important.
0: That's great advice. I think that's a very balanced view that reflects the whole idea behind doing an MBA. And an executive MBA means people have work experience already. So that's a particularly rich context. Guillaume, I'd like to thank you very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts. I would like also to thank all the listeners of the podcast episode to pop over to my website, boldlybrick.com, where you can see the show notes for the conversation that Guillaume and I have just had. And you can also take a look at the description of my book, The Gig Mindset Advantage, and check out the Bold New Breed community that I have just initiated. There are some really interesting conversations going on there. So thank you again, Guillaume. I appreciate your thoughts. They've been very well expressed.
1: Thank you, Jane. It's uh, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And see you one day soon in (laughs) real life. (laughs) Okay.
1: Cheers. bye. Bye.
0: Cheers.